United States of America. For too long, we have gone without a chancellor who is willing to take bold leaps of faith and logic to create new possibilities for our great, big, fat nation. As your chancellor, I will balance the budget on the head of a pin, give entertaining speeches, have scandalous affairs, write strongly worded letters to unpopular foreign leaders, look good on camera, end all hunger, crime, abuse, war, disease, disasters, sadness, depression, oppression, repression, suppression, transgression, obsession, expression, impression, regression, and digression by signing pieces of paper that express my disapproval of such things. And invest in an American flag pin to be worn prominently on my stylish jackets. It's time to work together to take the country back from us and return it to ourselves. It's time to turn this country around and drive it into opposing traffic. It's time to take a chance on the Chancellor. Hey, I'm local comedian Edna Mirarea, known for my sketch comedy show, Edna in a Bottle. I also happen to be a monologue queen, yes. so when I'm not joking about the state of humanity, I am telling stories, just like I do in my solo show, Alters for My Alters, where all the characters in my head try to conquer me for stage time. That's right, you better put me on. Leave her alone. Where am I? It won Best of SF Fringe and it's broke-ass steward approved. And I'm screening my solo show on February 5th because it's my birthday. So we're having a drum and bass party afterward with DJ Flacco. Drum and bass. Get your tickets to my show, Alters for my altars and the dance party afterward at Eventbrite. Just go to eventbrite.com and type in Edna Monologue Queen Turns 35. See you February 5th.
and brothers uh, back east or, uh, of the north part are dealing with snow. Two feet of snow in New York. God, that's got to be a gas at some point, you know, where you just say, all right, it is what it is, and you, you get those skis on and, uh, and ski down Broadway. Vigilante man Why does a vigilante man Carry that sawed off shotgun in his hand Would he shoot his brother and sister down I rambled around from town to town I rambled around from town to town and they herded us around like a wild herd of cattle Was that the vigilante men? Have you seen that vigilante man? Have you seen that vigilante man? I've heard his name all over the land Okay, that was, Woody Guthrie, this is the Labor and Love Show, and we're having a little trouble getting started here, but uh, hang with me and we'll get it all fixed up. This is the B, and you're listening to Mutiny Radio, <clears throat> 2781 21st Street in San Francisco. in the heart of the mission. See if we can get some jazz up here for you while we deal with our problem. Trump is gone. 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 I don't need no other words to this song. But Trump is gone. Trump. 
I bring you greetings from the White House. Say a word, Tommy, say a word. Tell Paula White, <laughs> Trump is gone. Tell Bob Johnson, oh, Trump is gone. Somebody tell Kanye, oh, that Trump is gone. Tell Diamond and Silk, that Trump is gone. Yes, he is. Tell Ben Carson, Trump is gone. Come on here. Wait. Watch your boy stop. Trump is gone. Yes, he is. Yes. Oh, is gone. I'll tell you the story of Jonathan Tweed Who had a good wife and four children to feed His wages bought food and a place they could bunk But during the layoff poor Johnny was sunk Yes, during the layoff poor Johnny was sunk 
When Johnny was working, he'd get along fine. But when he was laid off, he'd worry and pine. He did not get paid, but his bills did not cease. No wonder poor Johnny could not sleep in peace. No wonder poor Johnny could not sleep in peace. Now Jonathan Tweed said there must be a way to guarantee workers a regular pay. And that's when he thought of a guaranteed plan. And the boys in the union backed him to a man. The boys in the union backed him to a man. Said Jonathan Tweed, now there's one thing quite queer. The bosses get paid every week in the year. But now when we ask for a guaranteed wage, they rant and they roar and break out in a rage. They rant and they roar and break out in a rage. Come all of you workers, pray listen, take heed, for this is the message of Jonathan Tweed. Though big corporations may bellow and rage, we'll stand up and fight for a guaranteed wage. We'll stand up and fight for a guaranteed wage. Chavez, maybe it was Dorothy Day. Some will say Dr. King or Gandhi set them on their way. No matter who your mentors are, it's pretty plain to see. If you've been to jail for justice, you're in good company. Have you been to jail for justice? I want to shake your hand. Sitting in and lying down are ways to take a stand. Have you sung a song for freedom or marched that picket line? Have you been to jail for justice? Oh, you're a friend of mine. You law-abiding citizens, listen to this song. Laws were made by people, and people can be wrong. Once unions were against the law, but slavery was fine. Women were denied the vote and children worked the mine. The more you study history, the less you can deny it. A rotten law stays on the books till folks with guts defy it. Have you been to jail for justice? I want to shake your hand. Sitting in and lying down are ways to take a stand. Have you sung a song for freedom or marched that picket line? Have you been to jail for justice? Oh, you're a friend of mine. Now the law's supposed to serve us, and so are the police. When that system fails, it's up to us to speak our peace. It takes eternal vigilance for justice to prevail. So get courage from your convictions. Let them haul you off to jail. Have you been to jail for justice? I want to shake your hand. Sitting in and lying down are ways to take a stand. 
This is the B that I told you earlier. This is the Labor and Love Show. <coughs> Labor and Love Radio, where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is where you work, you're on the menu, I guarantee it. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's only a waste of time. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Of course, they don't want you to have a union. Of course, they don't want you to ally with other workers. Your work makes them rich. And good morning to you, to all of you, and welcome to Mutiny Radio, the Labor and Love Show, every Saturday from 10 to 12, labor, opinion, commentary, history, you name it, we got it. It's all for and about working people. That last song we played was kind of special, that was... Uh, Ann Feeney, more about Ann Feeney later. We lost Ann Feeney this week to the COVID. Ann Feeney, one of the uh, great labor-based uh, singers. You call her a folk singer? I don't know. Have you been to jail for justice? If you have, you're a friend of mine. Before that, we had one by Clarence Cooper, and Clarence Cooper is singing about something that a lot of workers wish they had now, guaranteed wage, which is kind of like unemployment, but it goes one step further. You get paid the wage, whether you work or not, whether you're out of work or not. Of course, if you're working, it's just paid every month to everybody. Now think of what that would do. How many of our problems, of our crimes, both petty and otherwise, are because people are hungry or people don't have a place to live or, or medical care. How much of that crime would disappear if there was such a thing as a guaranteed wage. And before that, our comedy group, um, Trump is gone. Trump is gone. Trump, since he lost his uh, Twitter account, has kind of uh, dropped out of the limelight, which to me, which to me, anyway, uh, is kind of uh, scary because you know he's not being quiet. You know he's not standing still. You know he's planning the next stunt or the next maneuver that will get him back into the public eye and hopefully sustain his ridiculous argument that The election was stolen from him, certainly. 
My name is Bill Morgan. I'm a member of two unions, Local 510 Sign and Display and UESF Local 61, the United Educators of San Francisco. And my show is dedicated to the labor movement in all its forms and all its reaches, not just unions, but any kind of worker initiative. I just want to mention <coughs> something from the uh, theoretical part of the labor movement. The argument that is between uh, some people who say worker co-ops are the are the uh, answer to workplace issues, workplace problems. If workers are owners and make the decisions regarding, you know, the workplace and uh, how the surplus is distributed, that would go a long way toward providing democracy in general in our society. As uh, Richard Wolf points out, your job, when you go into your job, you lose your rights. It's a whole different world. There is no longer democracy on the job. People can say the United States is a democracy. <laughs> I find that a bit laughable, but some people say that. But when you go on your job, you give up your rights. And uh, in a worker-run workplace, that would not happen. Workers would probably not vote to move their jobs to Asia. Workers would probably not <coughs> lower their own wages and make their own world that much less fruitful. Workers would not pass anti-worker rules for on-the-job training and on-the-job work. Now against that argument, the, the goal is, the goal being worker cooperatives, against that argument is uh, the labor activist argument. The labor activist would say, Oh, that's great, you know, but that takes a bunch of workers out of the struggle for a just society. Instead of uh, using confrontational direct action on the job to make everything better, worker co-ops take people out of the movement. Now you have to think about that. How would you come down on that side? I would say I would say that they they could happen at the same time. I would say that one could happen before the other. You could have a democratic labor-based revolution that would change everything and encourage the formation of worker co-ops or 
the formation of worker co-ops would boost the whole society's embrace of democracy. It's an interesting theory. I would like to talk a little bit about theory. Doesn't really get us anywhere except to the next step. Gets us to think about it. Okay, one of our regular, in case you haven't heard the show before, one of our regular features is what's called radio labor. Radio labor is a worldwide labor report. And uh, reports to us what's going on around the world in the labor movement. Because as we know, we're not isolated here. What happens to workers in Turkey or... This is solidarity. ...happens to us as well. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, February 5th, 2021. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, how unions are working with governments and businesses to confront the pandemic. How COVID is affecting Africa. The Labor Start report about union events and singing. This is Radio Labor. The International Labor Organization has released a comprehensive report outlining how trade unions, businesses, and governments around the world have cooperated in response to the pandemic. The report was prepared by the Workers' Activities Bureau of the ILO. The Bureau works under its French acronym ACTREV. The ILO is the UN specialized agency focused on matters of work in the world. I talked to ACTRAV Director Maria Elena André about the report. I asked her first to explain who are the social partners mentioned in the report. The social partners that we talk about in this report are the ILO tripartite constituents, workers, employers, and governments. And social dialogue, according to the ILO, and in the report it's not different from that, concerns all types of negotiations. You know, it can be from a consultation, it can be to a simple exchange of information, but it can also come to real negotiations. In the case of the bipartite dialogue, it can come to collective agreements. So it is important to focus on the fact that when we're talking about social dialogue in, in the report, we're talking about all the different manners that social dialogue can be represented and also all the time bringing either representatives of governments with trade unions or employers and trade unions or the three of them together moving forward in relation to the, um, to the pandemic. Um, I think that if we think that the main goal of social dialogue in itself is to promote consensus building and also the democratic involvement of the main stakeholders in the world of work, moving forward in this pandemic is really the heart and the soul of social dialogue in the ILO. I would say that the first conclusion we can draw from the analysis is the fact that if we move towards a collective approach in comparison to an individual approach, we have a win-win situation for workers, employers, and governments. 
And what do I mean by that? I mean, if you look into the data that we have been able to collect in the report, you will see that workers' organizations as active players in social dialogue. We have analyzed 130 countries. What we have observed that in 108, so 81%, used social dialogue in response to the pandemic. And this was with a view to achieving a consensus uh, on, on targeted measures to protect both workers and enterprises. Then if you dig a bit more deeper, you see that at least one form of social dialogue, either tripartite, bipartite, or both, was used, for instance, in 100% of the Arab state countries that were part of the study, in 88% of the Asian and Pacific countries, in 84% of the countries in Europe and Central Asia, in 77% of the African countries, and in 76% of the countries in the Americas. So if we look uh, at out of all these examples, Tripartite dialogue between governments, trade unions, and employers' organizations took place in 79 countries, and this represents 59% of the 130 countries in the sample. But let's look a little bit at the bipartite dialogue between employers and trade unions. And there, it was reported in 82 out of the 136 countries, 62%. And I think that in a moment when we hear so often people say that collective bargaining, the bipartite dialogue are things of the past, if you look at what employers and workers have done together, you will note that often they have expressed similar concerns over how adequate the measures adopted or proposed uh, for, for the labor market, for the workers and for the companies were in fact adapted for the necessary uh, emergencies that we had. As the COVID-19 pandemic started to spread in March 2020, it seemed that Africa would be largely spared because it was experiencing much lower rates of infection. But there are now signs that the situation on the continent is getting much worse. One of the organizations which has been helping trade unions confront the pandemic is ITUC Africa. ITUC Africa is the regional organization of the International Trade Union Confederation. The ITUC represents national labor centers such as the Ghana Trades Union Congress and the AFL-CIO in the United States. ITUC Africa's General Secretary, Kwasia Duamankwa, spoke about the effects of COVID in a recent webinar. COVID-19 has been wrecking havoc across the world since it was declared a pandemic in March 2020. Who, the WHO has already confirmed over 100 million infections around the globe with over 2.1 million deaths. In Africa, in the course of 2020, the death toll from COVID-19 was initially lower and the, than what many have predicted. And the continent seemed to have avoided the catastrophe from COVID-19 that many people expected. From the beginning of 2021, the situation has been changing with a surge in infections and a rising death toll. And with a reported figure of over 81,000 deaths out of more than 3.3 million infections from COVID-19, as of January 21st, 
the fatality rate of COVID-19 in Africa now is 2.5%. And this actually appears higher than the global fatality rate of 2.2. This is clearly cause for concern for the people of Africa. Work is both the way to address humanitarian emergencies and begin the long road out sometimes into sustainable development paths. That is Guy Ryder, the Director General of the International Labour Organization. The ILO is operated in a tripartite manner with the social partners, governments, business and labour unions working cooperatively. The ILO is warning that the combined effects of the pandemic and an historic drop in employment could increase violent conflict in the world. It has released a video calling for more emphasis on decent work as a key ingredient in social harmony and advancement. The COVID-19 pandemic has cost 495 million full-time jobs around the world to date. This severe loss of jobs, along with growing decent work deficits, can lead to social unrest and conflict. While the impact of this new crisis is global, countries already experiencing conflict and natural disasters may be tipped over the edge as they struggle to cope. Disenfranchised groups become even more vulnerable in the socioeconomic fallout. We are facing a dangerous time for world peace and stability. We already know that decent work is one of the keys to social cohesion and lasting peace. The ILO was founded on this mandate. In 2017, the ILO reinvigorated its commitment to peacebuilding by adopting Recommendation 205, the world's only international normative framework for promoting peace and building resilience in the wake of crises through decent work and employment. Here with his report about union events is Labour Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Each day, Labour Start's volunteers collect hundreds of news items about the struggles of workers and their unions from around the world in 36 languages. Here's a small sample of all that hard work. Our top stories section includes links to coverage of the responses of unions around the world to the military coup in Myanmar, together with how the labour movement in that country is mobilizing opposition to the military government. We also carried news of the positive moves by the new regime in Washington that will make life easier for unions there, and how the Haitian trade unions are increasing their pressure on their government in an effort to force it to resign. The emerging trend in our news coverage this week was the... Well, here we go. From a focus on Pardon. workplace safety issues faced by unions around the world to the economic impact of the pandemic on workers. Whole industries have been decimated globally, resulting in hardship for tens of millions of the unemployed. Industries especially hard hit include transportation. From trains to trucks, airlines to ships, travel has been restricted, and the scale of the resulting unemployment is staggering. 
Consumer goods sales have also contracted, affecting supply chains that reach back to already badly paid workers producing garments and electronics in the global south. From the many, many stories on this topic we are carrying, the challenge facing trade unions is both clear and overwhelming. Fight for workplace safety and social safety, while at the same time push for a recovery that benefits workers and not employers all while also advocating for the immediate relief programs for the workers hardest hit by the economic effects of the pandemic. In countries like Malaysia and much of Central America, unions are also attempting to deal with the return of millions of migrant workers and the loss of the incomes they would normally be earning and remitting to their families in their countries of origin. In countries like Nepal, unions are organizing the unemployed to press for social benefits, whilst in the Philippines they are also preparing for the long-term economic impact of the loss of migrant worker remittances. For our Working Women page, our volunteers found news of a new fight for pay equity in Scotland, the fight for control of women's bodies in Poland and where the labor movement there stands on this issue, and the death by gender harassment of an Indian garment worker. The free health and safety newswire we offer in cooperation with Hazards Magazine carried stories about the impact of COVID-19 on mine workers in Zimbabwe and on the unhealthy working conditions endured by Australian truck drivers. Current campaigns that we are running at the request of unions around the world include an urgent appeal for online solidarity with the trade unions under attack by the government of Kazakhstan. Look for details of this and other campaigns on our site. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor.
That song was written to support a strike for equal pay by women in Scotland. We've lost the name of the artist, so if you recognize the song, please send us a note using this address, email at radiolabor.org. And that's it, international labor news you can use. I'm Marc Boulanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. It's a war on child labor protection. It's a war on the eight-hour day. It's a war on occupational health and safety. It's a war on social security. Now, thanks to WTO, GATT, NAFTA, MAI, the IMF, and the World Bank, it's a worldwide war 
Hey, hold on a second. I want to show you how
That set uh, featured a couple of songs by Ann Feeney. In a minute, we'll talk a little bit more about Ann Feeney, who we lost to the COVID this very week. Uh, our uh, radio labor feature ended with Equal Pay by a Scottish singer, Scottish group. And as they noted, they don't, know the name of the group so if anybody out there recognizes it please let uh, radio labor know by email um, but the other two songs were by a woman named Ann Feeney and if you know anything about the labor movement you probably heard of Ann Feeney this is a labor notes uh, appreciation of her Rest in Power, Ann Feeney. It's on the uh, Labor Notes website. This week, the U.S. labor movement lost its best-known and best-loved troubadour, the great folk singer-songwriter Ann Feeney. She died of COVID in, on February 3rd at age 69 with her children at her side, with her fantastic songs and feisty spirit. She made an incalculable contribution to the movement. She is irreplaceable and gone too soon. Feeney's beloved original anthems like Have You Been to Jail for Justice, which we played on our opening uh, set, War on Workers, and rocking renditions of classics like Which Side Are You On?, are staples of the Picket Line playlist. Her frequent touring partners, Evan Greer and Chris Chandler, wrote, starting in 1987 when she was inspired by Faith Petrick to quit her job as an attorney and dedicate her life to touring and making music in support of workers, and played more than 4,000 shows across North America and Europe. She performed for striking workers on countless picket lines in union halls and at some of the largest protests of the last century, including the protests that shut down the WTO in Seattle in 1999 and the March for Women's Lives in 2004. Her performance at the WTO was featured in the documentary This Is What democracy looks like. She organized dozens of tours supporting various causes, including the Sing Out for Single Payer Health Care Tour in 2009 and raised tens of thousands of dollars for strike funds and progressive causes. 
She sang for steel workers, car wash workers, miners, strawberry workers, railroad workers. You get the idea. And Feeney. Rest in peace. I'm looking right now for those songs. I'd like to play one more of Ann Feeney's work. Here we go. We do the work. Drive the cab. 
Okay, indeed. Uh, rest in peace, Anne Feeney. do the work. Um, <clears throat> okay, so one thing Ann Feeney mentioned kind of in passing, we teach the kids. We teach the kids all over the United States. <clears throat> I'm sure, all over the world. Governments <clears throat> and uh, well, lots of people are pushing to reopen the schools where schools are being held at what's called distance learning, which means the kid sits in front of a computer and uh, watches and listens to a teacher on the screen. So all over the world, now despite the fact that the COVID is still going crazy, the minute there's a little break in the COVID spread, everybody wants to open the schools. They want kids to go back to school. And that means they want teachers to go back to school. Should teachers go back to school? Should kids go back to school? There have been some quote-unquote uh, quotas when a certain percent of kids uh, are, are reported you know, having the COVID, then you reclose the schools, I guess. Governor Newsom is taking a lot of heat now for the pandemic in California, but what he did was he reopened the state too soon. He thought the COVID was going away, I suppose. I don't know if he was listening to Mr. Trump or what. So here locally in San Francisco, the uh, union has been negotiating with the district. The San Francisco Board of Supervisors took the strange step of suing the Board of Education because they haven't come up with a plan to reopen the schools. In the meantime, there's a big battle brewing in Chicago. Mayor Lori Lightfoot has walked away from the bargaining table again after instructing her CPS, Chicago Public Schools leadership team, to su submit a last, best, and final offer to the union at 11.15 on Thursday night. This is the Chicago Teachers Union website. The mayor's offer would pause in-person learning district-wide only if there are COVID-19 outbreaks in 50% of Chicago public schools buildings at the same time. Meaning, 
at COVID-19 cases in more than 200 schools would not be caused to consider the reinstitution of remote learning in the view of the mayor on CPS leadership. The mayor's proposal denies remote work accommodations to 75% of educators with household members at high risk for COVID-19, even though none of their students have opted for in-person learning. As educators, school clerks, and other CPS employees struggle to access COVID-19 vaccinations under the mayor's Hunger Games system of vaccine distribution, CPS will only commit to vaccinate about 1,500 workers per week, given no priority to staff expected to return first or those living or working in the hardest-hit communities. Under that schedule, educators forced back into buildings could still be waiting until June for vaccinations, months after the mayor proposes to fully open school buildings. <sighs> okay. Now, there are some... some uh, Ideas. I mean, there are some wildcatters who are saying that the union has not supported them. This is something I would, I would assume, you'd want to. One one um, demonstrator has a sign here that says, "I can't accept the plan that will kill my kids." Uh, okay, so all over the country this is happening, and it's going to happen. And the reason is why. I mean, are all these people really interested in getting children to have a better education? Because there is a case to be made for that. And the bottom line is that at distance learning doesn't work nearly as well as face-to-face -face learning. I'm tempted to say it doesn't work at all, but maybe some people appreciate it. I don't know. If there's any human endeavor that demands face-to-face -face education, it's the education of our K-12 kids. The case against it, well, I want to be blunt here. A major reason that politicians want to open our schools, reopen our schools, is so kids can go to school so their parents can go to work. Parents can go to work and be productive knowing that their kids are being taken care of. I personally don't know what people have been doing. In the house where I live, there are retired adults who can take over, at least for a while, the 
education of uh, the children. I'm sure that's not true in most cases. What if both parents have jobs? What do they do? Is there cheap child care? Cheap, high-quality child care available in this society? Absolutely not. So it's, uh, it's a mystery to me what people are doing. I think in a lot of cases, they're just not doing it because they can't. We're not having the kids sit in front of the computer. And besides, how many people don't have access to online learning? It's a mess. What do you think? Should schools reopen under those circumstances? Teachers are saying they want to be vaccinated before they go back to work. I find that reasonable. What about a way of testing kids every day, kids and teachers and support staff? Anyway, look on the Teachers Union page. Uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot has said that if teachers don't come back to school on Monday or report to school on Monday, as they've been ordered to do, the district will take away their internet privileges, which means they won't be able to teach at distance either. And I think it's fair to say that it's the business community one of it, that's one of the main forces beh behind this, as well as the business community was behind the reopening of California to a disastrous, disastrous month of January. Okay, enough said. Um, check it out. I always like to play this because it shows what workers can do when they're united. And uh, on July 31st, 2018, a small group of workers willing, building a new UPS hub in Indianapolis were sent home by their boss. Workers were all Latino, and the boss, who was white and, according to the workers, racist, dismissed them on the grounds of disobeying orders. In response, the entire group of around 100 workers picked up and left the job site, shutting down operations for the day. Antoine Dangerfield, a 30-year-old welder working on the same site but under a different contractor than the workers who walked out, captured the events in a video with some strong language. Okay. So, listen. Hey, Migos, get up out this motherfucker. Y'all got him fucked up. <laughs> get him. They sent a couple of them home, they all packed they shit up and shut this motherfucker down. Nigga, who y'all think y'all playing with? 
Mexico, man, this is what black people need to be on, man. I swear to God, I love this shit. They are packing they shit up and shutting this motherfucker, huh? Uh, on my mama, all that shit. <laughs> they are not bullshitting. They packed up. Yeah, I see, it's over. Them motherfuckers now packed up and dipped. They thought they was gonna play with these amigos and they said, oh yeah, we rise together, homie. And they leaving. And they not bullshitting. Take this in, man. Look at this, man. They shut this big motherfucker down today, man. We all going home, man. The SAs. Look, ain't no grinding, cutting, welding. This motherfucker dead ass quiet. The Mexicans shut this motherfucker down, nigga. Said, fuck you, bitch. And really, and really, see, this is what I'm talking about, baby. I swear to God, they got me here geeked up. Oh, my Malcolm X shit. Oh, my mama, nigga. Fuck the bullshit, nigga. Look at this. They shut this bitch down. They pissed them off, nigga. They said, fuck you, we out. We not working no more today. Kiss my ass, nigga. I'll let y'all tomorrow. On my mama. That's great. Look. Ain't nobody here. We're just cleaning up. We're going home. It's over and ride with that face, nigga. Fuck it. Going to the crib. Going to the, going to the casa. I thought I would go, man. Boy, be in. You swear to God, these motherfuckers want to play it nice. Okay. In an interview with Jacobin, ain't no grinding, cutting, welding this motherfucker dead ass quiet. Mexican shut this motherfucker down. In an interview with Jacobin, Dangerfield described what he saw happening as life changing. Though he got fired for posting the video after his contractor boss tried to pay him $250 to take it down. What affected him was seeing the demonstration of worker power unfold and shut down an entire job site. I just felt that power, man. It just felt good, he told Jacobin. They was walking out with their heads up strong. It touched me. That's why I was like, wow, this is beautiful. It was beautiful that they came together like that stood up for themselves and not let the dude walk over them. It's had 1.1 million views of, off of Facebook. It's doubled by that now. Nearly 800,000 have watched it on YouTube. Many of the comments echo Dangerfield's enthusiasm for seeing workers band together in the face of mistreatment by their higher-ups. What's significant about what happened at the UPS site in Indianapolis, hub site, is that the workers who walked off were not unionized and as such did not have the protection of a larger organization to back up their action. <coughs> as unions have waned in strength across the U.S., it's often unclear how workers are able to advocate for themselves on job sites. Workers who walked off the floor in Indianapolis are an example of how it's done. 
as wages and worker protections continue to stagnate, businesses should be prepared to see more and more worker action, even if their workforces are not organized. Okay. And let's see. There's an interview with uh, Antoine Dangerfield that's on that fast track that was on uh, Fast Company website. World changing ideas. Okay, well, I know how that makes me feel. That makes me feel good. Here's Joe Cocker.
And then there's a lesser known type of fat called brown fat. And this is the type of fat that literally eats up your stubborn, annoying white fat like Pac-Man. And research...
See this mug right here? I don't own it, I don't inventory it, and yet I make passive income from it.
to 11.30 now. <clears throat> Where does the time go? That, of course, was Ed at James with uh, Dylan's Gotta Serve Somebody, and I was thinking if there's a theme to today's show, there might be two themes. One of them is you gotta serve somebody. Edda sings that one, and uh, Ann Feeney sang Which Side Are You On? Which Side Are You On? Are you on the side of the devil or the Lord? Are you on the side of the corporation or the worker? Are you on the side of the scabs or the strikers? To every life there comes that choice. A lot of people just avoid it or reason it away or wait and make up their mind when they see what Everybody's doing, but which side are you on? For that, we had uh, Joe Cocker. Joe Cocker and his, uh, I'm feeling all right, which 
I felt all right after I heard that tape of the Mexican workers marching off their jobs. And uh, then we had Jimmy Reed. I, I've always wanted to play Jimmy Reed. I don't know if I ever have. That was Jimmy Reed from uh, a festival in Europe, in Switzerland, I believe, in 1968 with his classic Big Boss Man. And Big Boss Man implies the idea of direct action. Reed said that he was uh, picking cotton and uh, got very thirsty. He said he wanted a drink of water. And the overseer, who he calls Mr. Senator, rides right past him, didn't even hear him or pretended not to hear him, which is what you can do if you're the overseer or the quote-unquote master. What about the post office? This is something there was a lot of focus on when uh, Donald Trump appointed a guy who seemed like his interest was in breaking the post office down so it could be privatized. Why is there a, a postal crisis anyway? Um, and this is what, this is it. 2006, Congress passed a law that imposed extraordinary costs on the U.S. Postal Service. Postal Accountability and Enhancement Act required the UPS, USPS to create a $72 billion fund to pay for the costs of its post-retirement health care costs 75 years into the future. Now, they're, they're telling, they told the post office, Congress told the post office, you've got to have enough money put aside to meet all your pension obligations 75 years in advance. If the costs of this retiree health care mandate were removed from the USPS financial statements, the post office would have reported operating profits in each of the last six years. And this one is dated on the 19th. There's another article that tells brings this all up to date. And it's December. Uh, additional cuts in service and privatization would be devastating for millions of postal workers and customers, which is exactly what Trump's uh, postmaster general wanted to do. And uh, listen to a little jazz. I'm going to look for this newer article.
Okay, I was looking for another article about the post office, and what's happened uh, recently is that the Congress, the House of Representatives, has passed uh, a bill relieving the post office of that onerous, onerous burden. Um, and it's set to uh, go through the Senate, too. It does have a Republican um, sponsor in the Senate, so maybe there is a good chance that uh, that wrong will be righted and the post office can become like like the other the other federal agencies. The groundhog predicted six more weeks of winter. Um, enormous VA union contract. Let's see what that one is. This is in these times, enormous VA union contract moves towards uncertain conclusion under new Biden administration. The fate of more than a quarter million federal workers is still up in the air. Unionized workers at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs have spent the past four years in a grinding workplace battle with the Trump administration existentially hostile towards unions representing federal government workers. Now, as negotiations draw to a close on their new contract, one of the biggest union contracts in America, the union says that the damaging hangover of the Trump years is still very much a reality. In 2018, Donald Trump signed a series of executive orders that drastically restricted the collective bargaining rights and power of the union, even taking away the union's office space in VA buildings. Joe Biden rolled back those orders shortly after taking office, yet the change of administrations may not be enough to guarantee that the hostile contract negotiations that have already been underway for years will come out as the union hopes. So, those are leftover people from the Trump administration who might still want to uh, affect a situation. Okay, uh, getting up to takeoff time, and uh, speaking of federal workers, huh? Here's Francesca Ramsey talking about cops and why it's not just about good cops versus bad cops. It does. 
Recently, we've seen a lot of viral videos and memes that are meant to show us that some cops are cool and hip and they're totally just like you and they wouldn't murder you in your home while you're trying to sleep. Police officers dealing with Black Lives Matter protesters in Pittsburgh, hugging people in Cleveland, and National Guard members dancing in Georgia. But all of those images are in direct contrast to the stories of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, Ryan Milton, Atiana Jefferson, Aura Rosser, Kiwi Herring, Philando Castile, Botham Jean, and countless others who've died at the hands of law enforcement. To be extraordinarily blunt, all of those people were murdered by police, and cops playing basketball with teens or handing out ice cream won't bring them back, nor will it stop the list of names from growing. The goal shouldn't be to comfort people with the existence of good cops, but instead to stop people from being killed and brutalized by the police, anywhere, ever. So this is the focus of the upcoming season of Decoded. Each week, we'll tackle a different problem with policing in America in hopes of addressing how we can end police violence and rethink what it means to live in safe communities. We're going to begin by looking at the idea of the mythical good cop and why it fails to meaningfully address the systemic problems with policing. Whenever an instance of police violence gains national attention, the first argument that gets trotted out is that we can end police violence by making sure there are more good cops who can help stop the bad apples. And that's not just an idea that your weird uncle posts about on Facebook, in between Greta Thunberg memes and conspiracy theories about pizza places. We've seen the good cops can fix it idea championed in op-eds by Forbes and the New York Times. There are a few reasons why this line of thinking is so appealing. There are over 800,000 police officers in this country, and the good cop rhetoric is an emotional appeal that asks and answers three main questions. Is it hard to be a police officer? Yes. Do police officers often find themselves in dangerous situations? Yes. In that group of over 800,000, are there bound to be well-intentioned police officers who don't like what they see across the country? Yes. But does any of that matter when it comes to stopping police violence? Not really. In fact, this system is built to suppress and punish those who try to challenge the way it's built, even if they're these so-called good cops. Take Carol Horn. After 19 years in the Buffalo PD, she intervened as her partner used a potentially lethal chokehold on a subject. The result was that Horn was accused of putting another officer's life in danger and fired one year before her pension would have started. In 2016, she told Spectrum News, if there are good officers, why don't they stand up? They don't stand up because of me. They don't want to end up in the same situation. And it's not just Carol Horn. There was Joe Crystal, who was fired for reporting police brutality in Baltimore. Laura Shook, who was fired in Indiana for reporting corruption. And Shanna Lopez, fired for reporting police officers that preyed on vulnerable women in Dallas. So in short, when there are good cops, the bad cops fire them. But the good cop rhetoric isn't just an emotional appeal. It's also a political one that helps increase police budgets. Because there's a cycle in America where police officials and politicians respond to high-profile incidents by pledging more recruitment and training and better community policing practices. For example, after the killing of Mike Brown in Ferguson, the Department of Justice ultimately sued the city and fought to get more money for police technology, training, and additional officers for the Ferguson police. Hmm, if only there were a movement that reimagined how we could spend that money to keep communities safer in new ways. So whenever someone asks, what about the good cops, they're fundamentally asking the wrong question. They should be asking, what does the state ask police forces to do? Because beyond the police, there's the court system and the prison industrial complex. Beyond those are the numerous local, state, and federal politicians, as well as prosecutors, who determine what is criminalized and who will respond, all of which is calculated to cost hundreds of billions of dollars annually. That's what we mean when we say policing is a systemic issue. 
problem lies at the root. From the war on crime in the 1960s to the subsequent war on drugs, and notably the 1994 Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act, the police have been given a clear mandate by both prosecutors and politicians. Make arrests and fill prisons. This is what both good cops and bad cops are tasked with doing. Since 1970, the prison population has increased 700% to 2.3 million people. And in 2017, the FBI reported over 10.5 million arrests, less than 5% of which were for violent crimes. These eye-popping numbers exist despite the fact that FBI statistics show that the violent crime rate fell 51% between 1993 and 2018, while property crime fell by 54%. So crime is down, but the prison population has somehow gone way, way up. The mandate to make more arrests and fill prisons is coming from our highest levels of government. Okay, Francesca Ramsey there with her report on why it's not just about good cops and bad cops, like she says. The good cops get fired by the bad cops. So when you get into that argument, now you know what to say. This is the B, and it's time for us to sign off. I want to play this version of Lift Every Voice and Sing as we go out. The man you're about to see in here, the foolishness to have just joined us is Ray Charles. All right, three, four. I got something new in my bones. Make me want to shout hallelujah. And I want to This is the B signing off. Remember, uh, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. You don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table where you work. You're on the menu. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's only a waste of time. This is the B. We'll see you at 10 a.m. next Saturday. Si Dios nos da licencia. Please stay tuned for... My pal. And the flat black plastic show, Scott Walker, Scott O. Walker, coming your way. This is a little of HR.
Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a pattern? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> As the world gets wackier and less predictable in every way, it is more important than ever for us to all remember our roots. We wouldn't be here today if our ancestors hadn't had the capacity and the skills to take care of themselves and their communities using the resources in the natural world around them and their own two hands. My name is Wonia Thibault of Buckskin Revolution and Alone Season 6, and I started Buckskin Revolution not just to empower people with a wider range of skills to meet their basic needs, but also to inspire them with a sense of fulfillment and connection that comes with living a little closer to the earth and using our bodies, our minds, and our very DNA for what they evolved to do to help us thrive without the need for modern technology and industry. If that sounds appealing to you, I hope you'll join me for the Fall 2020 Buckskin Revolution Online Skills Gathering, an eight-week learning experience designed to work within any schedule. It involves pre-recorded classes, live interactive sessions, and online community learning support from both myself and your fellow students. The need for these skills has never been more pressing, and Buckskin Revolution is working hard to bring them to you. I hope you can join us. Get connected with yourself and the world around you at buckskinrevolution.com. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience, like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. Join us every Sunday, 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on MutinyRadio.fm for... Let's watch a full-length movie on... YouTube. We watch the best movies that... Uh, aren't they good? Well, they're chosen by uh, Here's you. his theme song again. Bye. Okay, bye. Watch a full-length movie. 
San Francisco, what are you doing this week? Come join Mutiny Radio Presents for four different comedy shows supporting local businesses in the Mission District and beyond. On Sunday, join us in the Tenderloin at Resolute Wine Bar, 678 Geary, for Barrel of Laughs at Resolute, an amazing comedy show with the best wines curated by Resolute. On Wednesdays, join us at Asiento at and 21st and Bryant for dinner and a show at Asiento. Delicious tapas, incredible drinks, hilarious comedy. Wednesday nights at 7.30. On Fridays at 7 o'clock, join us outside mutinyradio.fm here at 21st and Florida. 7 o'clock for outdoor comedy, socially distanced in the street. And Saturdays, join us at Atlas Cafe SF at 20th and Alabama for Titans of Comedy every Saturday at 2 o'clock. Hey, keep supporting local businesses and comedy here in San Francisco with your friends at Mutiny Radio. St. Valentine's Day Mascara, streaming live on Facebook, Sunday, February 14th, 11 a.m., an international affair hosted by Ms. Noir. Do you crave a Valentine's Day Mascara. St. Valentine's Day Mascara. 14th of February 2021. 11am PST. Facebook Live. A date for everyone. Hosted by Miss Noir. The Ministry of Lava manages our national lava resources to ensure that we will always have a steady supply of lava to operate the nation's active volcanoes, which in turn power our cities and methamphetamine labs. As a matter of national security, we need to reduce our dependence on foreign lava, which means an expansion of domestic lava drilling. As your chancellor, I will build lava wells all over the country, as well as secure access to more lava fields by invading Hawaii. Imagine our in the Nebraska sky like fireworks on the 4th of July, magma oozing over the rolling hills of Kentucky, Volcanic ash settling gently over homes in New England like fresh gray snow. If you want global lava markets to continue to be dominated by terriblest regimes like 